Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp playing, white sheet wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Would you like to take a seat? Very warm welcome to you, particularly warm welcome if this is your first time, if you're visiting us. Uh, my name's Ed, I'm married to Hannah, and we lead this church, as she said. Um, it's great to have you with us. Uh, so my family and I, we've been, we've been getting into Survivor. We didn't have it in the UK. I know that makes us like 20 years out of date, but as I often say, I, I'm a church leader. It's my job to be 20 years out of date, um, but we've really got into it. And the field day is just making me think of kind of survivor-type tasks where people roll around in mud wearing bikinis and kind of short shorts. I don't think that's what it's going to be like. Um, my favorite is Boston Rob. He's the best, and I won't hear a word against him. Just so you know, totally irrelevant to anyone who has not watched Survivor. Anyway, back to the point. Uh, we're into Genesis. Um, uh, we have been doing a series on the first three chapters of Genesis, and uh, we've made it up to uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, so let me read this uh, to you before we carry on. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did you really say you must eat? Not eat? No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, you must not eat from the tree, any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. I've just got a text, I hate Boston Rob. <laughs> Thanks, Barrett. Uh, you will not certainly die. Do not text me during my talk. It puts me off. <laughs> Boston Rob's the best. He's so fun and nice. Uh, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I know it's Pentecost Sunday, as Hannah said. We will um, get onto that in a minute. Um, but... For now, this passage, one of the most well-known pieces of literature, not just in the Bible, but probably in the whole of human history. And yet, I think it is, despite our 
familiarity with it, actually one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. So let me, if I may, talk about some of the things I don't think this passage is about, but is often commonly understood to be about, and then I'll have a go at seeing what I think it is about and see whether you agree with me. So, what it is not. Firstly, Adam and Eve's fall is not as pessimistic, I don't think, as many people have understood. Now, it is catastrophic. As we will see, it is catastrophic, and Hannah's going to come on to this next week. But it does not mean that all people ever since are incapable of actually doing anything at all good, and that the good stuff that they might appear to do is actually, actually not good. Rather than being this sort of defining moment in time and space at a specific point in human history after which everything categorically changed, Rather, it's actually an ongoing description of how things are. In fact, how they've always been for all of humanity before Jesus and how they will always be going on without Jesus. Secondly, this passage is not an explanation of the origin of evil. No such claims are ever made. In fact, it is completely silent on the matter. And it's also not an explanation of the origin of mortal death because, again, no such mortal death occurs. In fact, Adam goes on to live a very long life before finally copying it at the ripe old age of 930. Thirdly, the, ser the, ser the serpent and the apples and the nakedness have often, particularly in medieval times, been interpreted sexually as though sexual sin is actually the gravest of all sins. But again, there is no reference to sex in the text at all. That's just the medievals. They were obsessed with sex. They absolutely hated it, but could not get enough of it. <laughs> sexual sin is not the gravest of all sins. In Jesus' book, it's just as grave as everything else. And finally, the serpent himself has been excessively misinterpreted. He is not a phallic symbol. He is not Satan. He's a talking snake. He is a player in the dramatic presentation. He never appears again, and the author makes no further reference to the snake. Now, in Near Eastern tradition, as we've been seeing, they have borrowed from, uh, in order to create this Genesis account, but actually kind of a polemic against these Near Eastern myths about how the world began. Snakes and serpents are associated with chaos. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, serpents are often uh, symbols of Le Leviathan, who's this sort of uh, sea monster who uh, supposedly lives in the deep. Again, a kind of symbol of chaos, of ungodly, unruly world. The, the sea was often seen as this sort of place where um, God, God's goodness had not yet uh, kind of um, uh, brought order to. Sorry, I'm barely making any sense. So, he's an animal and he's chaotic, both of which points are important and we'll come on to in a minute. But in general, this text then is not actually interested in abstract theological questions like where did sin come from, where does death come from, where does evil come from, how could a good God create something not good? If you 
have read it for any time, you will know that the Bible is not Siri. Siri, how can a good God allow suffering? The Bible doesn't have an answer. It doesn't really work like that, in fact. Instead, the Bible's interested in more concrete things, arguably much more valuable things, like what are the actual problems with the world? What does God think about the actual problems of the world? Is there any hope for the world? Will humanity be okay? Why do we keep hurting each other? And so on the journey towards Christian maturity and along with the Bible, we can happily actually be prepared to answer the questions such as where did evil come from with I don't know. That's okay. I don't know. Neither do you. It's okay. But I know that evil exists because the Bible tells me. And I also know that it's defeated because the Bible tells me. And I also know that anyone and everyone can live completely free from its power because the Bible tells me. Now, these are not necessarily satisfying answers to our most intellectually probing questions, but they are more valuable. When uh, my father was dying of uh, dementia, I would go and sit by his bedside, and it was uh, a long, drawn-out process of seeing all the life drain out of him, really. Now, a theologically and intellectually satisfying answer for why this was happening to him was of no solace to him because he was dying. But him knowing surely in his heart of hearts that God is good, that God didn't intend this to happen to him, that God was created, created him to be something wonderful and actually immortal, and that death wasn't the end, that was of far more value. And it was of far more value to anyone you know going through suffering than a nice logical, well, I know the answer. And that's how the Bible works, because that's how God works. So those are some of the things that these passages are not. Now, let me give you a little caricature of how most people have heard it. You can nod along if this was you or this is you. God is this kind, bearded gentleman who likes walking around his beautiful garden with his creation. But he's only kind if you do what he says. And if you, if you don't, then he gets angry. Adam and Eve are his sort of playthings. He's created to love them and to play with them. But for everyone to get along perfectly, they actually really need to do what they're told. The problem is, Eve in particular, but also Adam, appear to be extremely naive. Quite possibly, they are very dumb. So, there's a sort of inevitability about them doing something stupid and then making God upset. We can all see it coming. It's like dramatic irony 101. Oh, guess what? It's happened. To make matters worse, and for reasons known only to himself, God has created a tree that Adam and Eve are forbidden from eating from because it will lead to death. It's almost like he's testing them with this tree. Why do that? 
Also, in a similar way, he seems to have created a serpent who appears not only far cleverer than Adam and Eve, but also really not very nice. So creating both the forbidden tree and the serpent seem to be massive, but easily avoidable mistakes on the part of God, who, after all, is supposed to be all wise. What are you doing, God? And, of course, dum-dum Eve and dum-dum Adam do the inevitable, and they disobey God, and as we know, and Hannah will come on to next week, this doesn't end very well. Finally, there is the fact that God also seems to be a bit of a liar, because he said that if they eat from this tree of knowledge, they will die. But when they do eat from it, they do not die. All very confusing. It raises as many questions as it does provide answers. And it's often why some well-meaning Christians have said, oh, just don't worry about it. Just leave it alone. It'll be fine. Let's not too worry about it. Put your fingers in your ears. Close your eyes. Just believe, and it'll all be fine. Often this is actually represented as having faith. The more faith you have, the less you question. But faith is not blindly believing something when actually everything in us is telling us, I don't think this is the case. We all have faith. We exercise it in lots of different ways. And we exercise it based on the knowledge that we have. But faith, blindly believing something that isn't going to happen or we don't think to be true, is no more faith than me having faith that tomorrow morning I will wake up with the face of Chris Pine and the wit of Chris Pratt and the muscles of Chris Hemsworth and the backside of Chris C. Teigen. It's not going to happen as much as I might want it. Christian faith, though, on the other hand, is built on the conviction that Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he has done. And when we place our life in his hands, we are exercising our faith. And the more we see that Jesus is who he says he is and does do what he says he does, our faith grows. It is not wishful thinking. It's not blind ignorance. It's a conviction which also requires us to take a risk, to put ourselves in the way of him doing what he says he will do. And as we often say here, faith is the magic with God. We are all called to grow in faith. But we can start where we start, with this faith as small as a mustard seed, and see it grow the more we see him be true to his real nature. And so the key to reading the Bible is not to see it like some sort of self-help manual to dip in and out of when things are rough and we need a bit of, you know, a pick-me-up. Rather, it's much bigger than that. The Bible is the revelation of the authority of this person, Jesus. God's own son, God himself, revealed to the whole of humanity so that we might put our faith in him. The Old Testament tells us what it is like to know something of God, but ultimately, pre-Jesus, to live a life that is always going to be actually hitting up against a brick wall. The Gospels show us who Jesus actually is. This is the image of the invisible God made to us so that we can actually see exactly what he is like. And the rest of the New Testament is what it is like for us post-resurrection, post-Calvary, post the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost, to live the life that we are supposed to live in his power through the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible is for. So, 
whenever we read the Old Testament like we are today, we will inevitably be confronted at some point with the absence of Jesus. But the narrative will always be looking for and longing for and expecting him, holding out, this is the one we need. And this is precisely what we have here. So that caricature of how some people have grown up viewing this passage depicts God as this sort of, despite everything, when push comes to the shove, what he really wants is obedient children. Just do what you're told. Do it, and then everything will be fine. Is that really what's going on here? I want to suggest no. The heart of Adam and Eve's rebellion is not disobedience. Now, disobedience is obviously there. They don't do what they're told. But that's not primarily the point of this passage. It's much bigger than that. As you will know, if you heard my excellent talk from a couple of weeks ago, it really was, I mean, I know I say this every time, but my talk a couple of weeks ago was really, really good. They're all brilliant, but this one particularly. As you will know from that talk, humankind, of which Adam and Eve are this sort of symbolic representation, were created not as subjects, not as playthings, not as children in need of discipline, but rather as God's idols, his vice-regents on earth. Which means Adam and Eve were neither naive nor dumb. They were anything but. They were divine. Adam, and Adam, as God's image idol, like God, already knows the difference between good and evil. For example, he's able to discern between the good tree and the bad tree. He is able to know that none of the animals are good enough, and when he sees Eve, that Eve is good enough. And he is described in the text as wise. This is kind of lost in the English translation, but the Hebrew word uh, would not have been lost, the meaning of which, to its original audience. At the end of chapter 2, the word used to say that Adam and Eve are naked is aram, a Hebrew word, meaning not just naked and innocent, but also of godly, pure wisdom. To be truly divine, to be truly divinely wise, is also to be guileless. Adam and Eve are Aram. But the serpent, in the very next verse, is Arumimum. I'll say that again because I said it wrong. Arumim, sorry. Aram, Arumim. Arumim means crafty. It's a play on words. It's like saying, I'm famous, you're infamous. Adam and Eve, pure in their wisdom. The serpent is crafty and manipulative. He is, in fact, ungodly wise. What about the trees? Well, the first tree, the tree of life, is not connected with the, uh, life in the sense that we would um, understand it, life as opposed to death. Rather, in Near Eastern thought, it was used as a motif to kind of um, connote royal life. For Hebrew ideas, there are no such, they didn't really think about life after death. They thought about living well is life and living badly is death. And in Revelation, uh, we see that the tree of life refers to fellowship with God. So, the tree of life, therefore, is the one that best befits the royal image idol status of Adam and Eve. It's the one that's right for them. It's the one that's good for them. I remember a few years ago, Hannah and I um, were traveling back from the UK, and it was just the two of us, and we got upgraded, which has never, ever happened before. And we sat there, 
sipping our pre-flight glass of champagne. And we just looked at each other and said, I, I think this is where we belong. <laughs> it, it hasn't happened since. Uh, but that's what the tree of life is like. This is right for them. It's who they are. It's royal. It's fellowship with God. It's befitting of their nature. Now, less is known about this tree of knowledge, but its name is very important, which I'm going to come on to in a minute. But the main point is God is not saying, don't eat from that tree and don't even ask me why. Don't ask me questions. Just don't eat from that tree. He is not Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast. He's saying, you know these trees. You know what they're about. You can discern. This one is yours. This one is right for you. Finally, is the serpent more shrewd than Adam and Eve? And maybe is he actually the devil? Well, verse 4 states that God made the serpent, and he's numbered as one of the wild animals. He is the craftiest, but nevertheless, he is a created being, a created wild animal. Now, given that Adam and Eve have been tasked with exercising dominion over all creation, this means that they, like God, have creative, subduing power over this serpent as, long, as well as everything else that's been created. So, he is their underling. He is neither their better, nor is he even their equal. He re represents, actually, not, something not quite godly. A bit deathly, in fact. He is in need of being brought to order, brought to godliness, brought to beauty. Have you ever thought what is outside the garden? So when God creates the garden, what is outside it? It's chaos. It's a whole swamp of chaos. And God says, go out into the chaos and bring beauty and order to it. Look, I've shown you how. This is what the whole universe should look like. Go forth and make it good. The serpent is a representation of that. What Adam and Eve are tasked with doing is actually telling him to shut it and bringing order to him. They should definitely not be listening to him. So, what then is going on here? How and why does it all go wrong? What are Adam and Eve ultimately guilty of? Well, the key to understanding this is all in the serpent's final temptation to Eve, verse 5. God knows that when you eat from it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As we've already noted, Adam and Eve are already both those things. They are like God. They are his idol. And they do know good and evil. They are wise, Aram. So they know fully what they are going after. And what they are going after is actually what they already have. But rather than simply be the divine idols of God, the pinnacles of creation, they grasp at something more. They grasp of that status, independent and equal 
with God. They want what they've already got. They just want it without him. And ultimately, Adam and Eve paid the price of listening to the creation rather than the creator. So, it's not so much they're not allowed to do this, it's they've already got it. Their heart, the heart of their sin is not disobedience. It's a desperate grasping for a divinity and a wisdom that they already have, but one independent from the one they were made for. And the consequences are disastrous. They don't die a mortal death, of course, as the serpent predicted. That would have been much better for them. But they do, as God predicted, die. And they die an infinitely more destructive death. They die the loss of identity. They annihilate who they actually are. Their eyes are opened, not in a positive way, but to what's just happened to them. Because sin is always both a rebellion against God and a self-denigration. It robs us of that relational connection with him, but it also robs us of ourselves. There's a Latin phrase. I know you wanted Latin. I, for some reason, I studied Latin forever at school. Until I left school. I studied Latin until I was 18. Total waste of time. But anyway, here is a Latin phrase for you. Incovatus in se. It literally means turned in, curved in on oneself. And theologians use this phrase to illustrate the problem of sin. Sin turns us in on ourselves. We double up as this kind of gravitational pull brings us closer and closer and closer to ourselves. And we stop from going from the generous, open, God-connected people of Genesis 1 to the curled-up, scared, ashamed people of Genesis 3. And notice that the death that God talks about does not come from any sort of punishment. God does not sentence them to death as a result of their crime. The death happens all by itself. It's like an inevitability. It has its own internal weight. So the nakedness and the hiding of themselves manifest before God even sees them, before God can do anything. They are already experiencing the consequences. They who were once Aram, wise, innocent, and divine, have now become Arimum, scheming, ashamed, undivine. And amongst other things, it means, if we skip a bit further, they lose their vocation. They're no longer concerned with the world. They're no longer concerned with looking after it. They're no longer concerned with their relationship with God. They're no longer even concerned with their relationship with one another. They are concerned solely with themselves because everything has become about self and all the terror that comes with that. It's like when we sin, a little piece of us dies inside. Um, I said I was 20 years out of date. Here's a reference from Mad Men. In um, Don Draper's storyline, uh, he's not been invited. It's sort of at the lowest ebb. He's not been invited to his um, own son's birthday party. 
His alcoholism is destroying him. He's trying to swim in this pool every morning. He's trying to write a journal uh, so that he can kind of be pulled out of his depression. But instead, he is actually just turning more and more and more and more into himself. And he puts it like this. We're flawed because we want so much more. But we're ruined because we get these things and then we wish for what we had. This is Adam and Eve. And of course, it can also sometimes be us, can't it? Maybe not to the same degree, but the same kind. For the original audience, it was about their king. This was written at the time of King Solomon, and it was a direct, actual kind of criticism of Solomon, because Solomon had started off like the great hope of Israel. He was like the new Adam, the perfect person who was doing everything great. He was wise. His wisdom was known everywhere. He was Aram, and he was building a beautiful kingdom, and then he grasped at more. He grasped and he grasped and he grasped, and the whole thing came crashing down. And this is saying, don't do that. This is our problem. Don't do that. For us, it says that sinfulness at its heart is actually always a denial of who we are. It's a denial of our calling as well. It's our forgetting or it's our giving up on a call to be God's divine presence on earth, to be special, to be perfect, to be his idols. Now, we all want more, don't we? Everyone senses it. In this city, I think it's very obvious. Walk into any casting room, any 50th floor job interview, script pitch meeting, any audition, you will see people, many of whom have worked incredibly hard to get to those places, with varying levels of drive and determination remaining, going after what they sense. This has got to be it. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. Grasp, grasp, grasp. Now, what Genesis says is not, though, don't do that. Know your place. Stop getting ideas above your station. Just be down there somewhere. It definitely does not say that. In fact, Genesis, yes. Yes, it says, yes, yes, you are. You are totally right to sense that there is more. Because you were made for more, every single one of you. You were made for divine, glorious immortality. Could you get more? You are fabulous. And so am I. But because you are, you don't actually have to grasp at it in your own strength. And doing so will always bring terrible consequences. So this is a story that's a warning, but it is also a hope. Because all our own attempts to regain our status, to regain our identity, will inevitably fail. We've lost it, we cannot get it back, but there is someone who can give it to us. And here's what makes that hope more than just vague, more than just wishful thinking, but real and concrete and for everyone. Philippians 2. Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. As I said at the start, Jesus is on every page of the Bible. And here he is here. He is the new Adam. He's not Solomon. 
He's not David. He's not Abraham or Moses. He's not Adam. He is the new one, the perfect one. And he, unlike the first and unlike every single one of us for all time, chooses not to go after equality with God. Literally, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, something to be stretched for. But rather, not because he didn't have it. In fact, he was by very nature God. He didn't go after it because he didn't have it. He went after it precisely because he knew he had it. Unequivocally, he knew who he was. He would walk into a room and know who he was. Nothing would faze him. Such was his complete and utter grasp of his status before God. Do you have that? Are there situations where you don't know who you are? Are there situations where you start behaving in ways you go, I don't know who that person is? God's call for us, God's love for us, is to restore to us a complete sense of our identity before him and before everyone else so that we might know ourselves to be fully the people he created us to be, to know his love for us. But Jesus is not just the perfect example, he's the perfect rescue too. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing. And in making himself nothing, he took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If sin doubles us over as it curves in on itself in this death spiral of self, 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 What Jesus does is he stretches out his arms on the cross. It's like he snaps that curve in his broken body so that all the pieces just fall to the floor. And he says, come to me and I will make you whole again. I will restore to you who you are your calling, so that you never need to grasp for anything again in your whole life, because you will be flowing in the presence of my spirit, who says to you, I know who you are, I love you, I've got jobs for you to do, I've got purpose and meaning for your life, allow me to do it, we were made to do this together, I'm not going to tell you that you need to be my obedient child, I'm not going to uh, play with you and then get angry and bored with you, I am going to say let's do this together, because that is what we were all created for. The heart of Adam and Eve's sin is independence, don't be independent. Allow him to change you. Put yourself in the position to hear from him once more, to do it with him once more, and to rid you of that curved in, that little death that keeps on dying inside. Amen? Amen. We're going to take communion, and then we'll pray for people. Should we stand? I just want to lead us in a little time of confession. There's only one person who really needs to hear our confession. 
and you don't have to go searching for anything. You don't need to flog yourself. You don't need to say, woe is me. I'm a terrible, awful, terrible little person. I must dredge up something to confess. You'll know right now if there is something between you and God. Why don't you just give it to him and trust him for who he is, where he will, as he says, remove it as far from you as the east is from the west. Is that far enough? Good. And then, having done that, would you receive the forgiveness of your father? People understand it in their heads. Very often they live with a life of unforgiveness, not knowing themselves to be forgiven. So let me proclaim to you what Jesus says. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Though we are like scarlet, he makes us as white as snow. And then what we'll do is we will take communion together as the um, band play. Um, in your own time, come and grab uh, the um, bread and the wine. There is gluten-free bread on the square plate. Don't go for the round plate. Um, and the wine is non-alcoholic. But in your own time, come and take these and receive God giving back to you your identity. There's always an exchange that goes on. We leave with him our stinking bags of garbage and he gives us beauty for ashes. Sense of love and goodness from him. All right. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his best friends, you, me, everyone else. And he said, here's my body, and gave the bread to them, and it's given for you. And after supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks for it and said, this is blood which changes everything, which changes the whole world once and for all and forever take it into you and be the new creation that you are. So we thank you, Jesus, for what you've done and we receive it into our bodies. We ask that these gifts would be everything you intend them to be for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So come and grab um, communion in your own time and we'll sing together for a bit.